0: Um, this morning we're, we normally have our corporate prayer time, but we're actually going to respond to God's Word not only in singing this morning, but also in prayer. So we'll have our corporate prayer time uh, after uh, we hear from God's Word. But uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 25. We'll be in verses 31-46 through 46 today. Um, that is, I believe, 831 in the Bibles that we've provided for you, page 831. If you want to use one of the Bibles we've provided for you. Uh, Most of you know that we have been in a series we've simply called Serve. We've talked about what it means to take a towel, to be a towel taker. In other words, like Jesus, we want to pick up a towel and serve those around us. We started uh, about four weeks ago by looking at Genesis chapter 12, and we saw that from the very beginning, our God is a missionary God. And he has blessed his people so that we, in turn, there might be a blessing to others. We've looked at the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, and how that the gospel then motivates us to extend that same kindness, mercy, and love to others. And so now this morning we are going to go from all the way back in Genesis 12 where we started, and we're going to finish up at the consummation of all things, when Christ returns to come back as the king and as our judge. You see, when some people think about the person and the work of Christ, they, it's almost as if they have a, a camera lens and they zoom in. Some, sometimes we like to zoom in on one aspect of his life. And so maybe it's for some that the incarnation in his sinless life those who look, lo, love to look at the example of Christ and say, we need to be like him, and that is true. But those of us who know our Bibles well know that Jesus didn't just come to be a great example. He came to be a Savior. He was born to die. And so Jesus then goes to the cross. And man, we, as a gospel-centered church, we want to center our church, our lives on the gospel. We need to be all about the cross. But he didn't stay at the cross, right? Jesus was raised on the third day that all who know Him might have life in Him, know the newness of life that comes from faith in Christ. But Jesus, after He was raised, then ascended to the Father, where now He reigns at the right hand of the Father and does His good work through His Spirit, even interceding for us but it would be wrong for us to simply zoom in on His ascension and His present reign if we fail to remember He is coming back. He is coming back to establish His kingdom, and when He comes back, He will judge everyone. You see, I think that sometimes we struggle living between the times between the time of His first coming, where He, as Mike said, brings this great salvation, and the time of His second coming, when He will return and we will see Him face to face. See, if we would hear from Christ this morning, we will hear Him help us to live in between the times. Because how we live today matters, not only for today, not only what we do this week, but it matters for eternity. And this is what Jesus will teach us. Here is the the point that I want us to walk away with this morning. In light of the coming judgment of the King, we must live well by loving the least of these. In light of the coming judgment of the King, live well By loving the least of these. Read the first three verses of Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 with me. We'll start in verse 31, where Jesus teaches this. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left so here we have this this eschatological picture this is another way of saying what what it will be like at the end of this age as we know it the end of human history as we know it jesus the son of man will return And it's not without intention that Jesus uses this title, Son of Man. It was one of his favorite titles for himself. And why is that? Well, on the one hand, it emphasized his humanity, that he was the incarnate God, God who became man. But on the other hand, it emphasized his deity, You see, the title Son of Man has clear messianic overtones. Listen to what Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 say. It says this, speaking of the Messiah, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So we see quickly in these opening verses that the Son of Man is also the King. The King who will return in glory to judge the nations. What do we learn about this King and His his coming? Well, first off, simply the King will come again. He is coming back again. As believers, in Christ we should eagerly anticipate his return we have more than sufficient reason to believe that he could come back at any moment and so let me ask you this morning are you thinking about his possible his soon return would you say that you are longing for his return that you are longing for the son of man the son of god the king of heaven and earth. Are you longing for his return? You see, there are many events in life that we eagerly anticipate, right? We wait for certain events in our life. Perhaps for some, it's graduation day. Maybe for some of you, high school or college students, you have graduation day, even if it's a year or two out, already circled on your calendar. Other times in life, it may be a wedding day. It may be the birth of a child it may be for some sports fans waiting for 80 plus years to reverse the curse and see the Red Sox win a World Series championship and of course some of us are hoping that this October it happens again for the third time in not so many years But we long for many things in this life why don't we long for the return of Christ there are several reasons for that. Perhaps, for starters, we are just too comfortable in this world. Perhaps we love this world a little too much. We are easily satisfied with what some pastors from several years, hundred years ago used to call creature comforts. And we Fail to long for Christ. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. This is a great encouragement. He says, Labor, listen to that language, labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world, and labor much to get acquainted with heaven. Related to that, there are probably other times where we just simply aren't walking with Christ very closely. And so if our intimacy, intimacy with Christ is, is waning, then there's a good chance that we aren't just longing to see Him, longing to be with Him. Other times it may just be that things are going really well in life. Things are going good with your friends, your family, your profession, your pursuits, and you don't feel the effects of the fall very Significantly, but listen to this. This is a heads up, and some of you can identify with this very well, probably even many of you right now. We will long for the return of Christ more when we feel the effects of the fall more acutely. You understand that? So when we, when we see that this world is not as good as it gets, when we experience sickness and sorrow and disappointment and discouragement, then the bell, the light goes off in our minds and in our hearts, and we see that, man, this is not as good as it gets. Christ, please come back and save us from this fallen world. And he will. The king will return. We must be ready for his return. But secondly, the king will come in glory. There is such a huge distinction between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. The first time he came and his glory was in many ways concealed. When he comes again, his glory will be revealed. When he came the first time, he came in humility. He even wore a crown of thorns on his head to die in our place. When He comes again, He will come, as C.S. Lewis says, as God without disguise. He will be completely glorious, and we will see Him for all that He is. Jesus Christ shares all the manifold perfections of God the Father. And we will see that. We will see Him, and we will have to respond in Worship. So Jesus will come and display his glory, but that's not all. The Son of Man will come, he will return, and he will judge everyone. We need to let this soak in this morning. The picture here, the image that that Jesus gives in this teaching, is one of a shepherd with the sheep and the goats. And it was common in those days, particularly at night, when it would get a little cooler out at night, that a shepherd would separate the sheep and put them on the outside and the goats on the inside because the sheep would stay warmer at night, obviously, and that would help the goats to stay warm. And So this would have been a common picture for those who heard Jesus teaching here. Shepherds separate sheep from the goats. And Jesus said, this is what will happen at the end of the age. There will be a clear separation. And this here, think about this, this undercuts the notion that is so popular in our culture today, and particularly popular in our culture here in New England, and that is this, that all roads, all possible ways to God, they're all going to end up in the same place, and we'll all be good to go at the end of the day. But Jesus here does not leave room for that. He draws a clear distinction. He says there will be a separation. Jesus is no pluralist. His judgment will be clear and it will be comprehensive. There's not one person on the planet, not one person here in this room this morning, not you, not me, not someone who may be riding on the 95 or the 101 or down the orange line today. No one on the planet will be exempt from the judgment of Christ. And as a side note, I want to encourage us, this should serve as an impetus for us to be sharing the gospel. Jesus says the nations, people from all nations, all people groups, the people groups that we often pray for on Sunday mornings, they will all be gathered before the throne, and we must tell them to be prepared for Christ's coming. Our friends, our family, our co-workers, they need to hear that how you respond to Christ in this life, how you live your life, in this life matters. It matters for eternity. We must help them be prepared to meet their Maker. So we see first in the text, in these opening verses, that the king will return in his glory to judge the nations. But then we ask the question: well, what will this judgment be like? I mean, what 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 will be the nature? What will even be the results of his coming judgment? And that's what we see in the rest of the chapter in verses 34 through 46. Read along with me as I read these verses for us. Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? To me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here is the the primary encouragement for us this morning. In light of the king's return, the king's return to judge, we must live well until he returns. Live well until he returns. You see, when Jesus comes back, He will not line us up and ask us, how popular were you? How much money did you make? How many degrees did you have hanging on your wall? He's going to come back and he is going to make us give an account for the way that we live our lives. And this teaches us that we must live well because the judgment of Christ will be based on our deeds. The judgment of Christ will be based on our deeds. To be a little stronger, and to make some of you, if not most of you, very uncomfortable here this morning, the judgment of Christ will be based on our works. And you say, hold on, Tanner. What are you What are you talking about here? I mean, haven't you read the Bible before? You should have been trained for this. Like, how they let you know? How did you become a pastor here? Some of you supporting churches are thinking you heretic. Why are we praying for this church and supporting this church financially? What are we What are we doing? Let's go back and report him to the pastor. Here's Here's the pattern of Scripture. Listen to this. Listen very carefully. The pattern of Scripture is that salvation is by grace. Don't miss that. Salvation is by grace, through faith. But we will be judged based on the way we live our life. Listen to what the scripture says. Psalm 62, verse 12. For you will render to a man according to his work. 2 Corinthians five ten. 10. These are just a couple verses. It's all over the scriptures. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that we may receive what is due for what he has done in the, the body, both whether evil or good. And so you ask the question, well then Tanner, how is this not salvation by works? I mean, an initial reading of this passage, if you just take this passage and set it aside by yourself on an initial reading, you're thinking, man, it seems like we are saved or justified by our own works, by the way that we live our life. What is going on here? Well, let's consider a few things, even in this passage. Number one, when we interpret Scripture, okay, everyone needs to learn this. When we interpret Scripture, context is key, all right? So, Matthew is writing this gospel, and there are 24 other chapters before chapter 25. And so, Matthew assumes that, hey, Jesus has given all kinds of teaching here, and this is not all that there is about the judgment that we should know about Christ and his return. I mean, who would pick up a novel, let's say a, a J.K. Rowling novel, a pretty popular lady these days, and, and open up Harry Potter, what's the, the new one, uh, the, 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 Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, who would pick up this new Harry Potter book, or actually the book's a little old, the movie's new, right, sorry, um, and open it to chapter 17. Danielle, I need your help here, she's our writer, resident writer and consumer of millions of books each week. Um, Who would open up this book to chapter 17 and expect to know all that's going on with Harry and his characters? We must not do the same thing with the scriptures. Salvation is by grace. And we even see this in Matthew's Gospel. Verse 21 of chapter 1 says that Jesus will save people from their sins. So there is is a separation from God because of our sin, and, and how will that be rectified? How will we be justified in God's sight? Number two, if we look at verse 34 of this passage, we see that there is overtones of grace, all, all in here. Well, let's, listen to this again. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So, so two things there. Number one, it, it is an inheritance that we will receive. And what do you do to earn an inheritance? Nothing. An inheritance is a gift. And and even added to that, it says in this very same verse that this inheritance is a kingdom that we will experience living in the presence of Christ under His rule and reign, and it was prepared from the very foundation of the world. God's great plan of salvation was not dependent upon you or I. It's dependent upon His grace. And so... Even in this passage, we see that this is not, even if it appears to be salvation by works, it's certainly not salvation by works. Salvation is by grace through faith. But, don't miss this, but our works validate our faith. This is what Paul gets at in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Probably familiar verses for many of you. Listen to this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So clearly, salvation is by grace. But then, don't miss verse 10. What does Paul say in verse 10? He says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, though we are saved by grace the fact that we are saved by grace, we are then propelled, motivated, compelled, in light of this grace that we have experienced and not earned, to then engage in good works, engage in good deeds, because we know the grace of God. So God sanctifies His people. He saves and sanctifies His people for service. And this is particularly applicable for us this week. As we head into our Serve Medford week, we have teams, again, from all over the country, and we have our own Redemption Hill crew here serving diligently this week. We're going to have an opportunity to engage this city with countless deeds of kindness and mercy and love. And we will do so not as a way to earn our salvation before God, but as an expression of, hopefully, the salvation that we already know in Christ. See, this passage should serve as a corrective for us. You see, a lot of times we can reduce Christianity to an intellectual pursuit. Yes, God has called us to love Him with our minds, but there's so much more than that. He says we are to love Him with our hearts. So it's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not even only a devotional pursuit, referring to our worship and pursuit of God individually. But what Jesus calls us to do is He calls us to wed our head and our heart and our hands together that we might go out and serve others and the 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 stress here is laid listen to this the stress is laid here on what happens outside of these walls of worship on sunday morning when jesus returns i mean that is not in any way to demean what happens on sunday morning i mean we should meet together regularly every sunday we should gather for prayer for singing for for to to hear god's word to respond to god's word to confess our sin all those things are great and holy things but we oftentimes get so self-focused that we lose our sense of mission. See, when Christ returns, He is going to be preeminently concerned with what happens out there. What we do to love the needy, the helpless, the sick, the poor, the stranger. How we display His love and also declare His love. To others. The relationship between worship and mission should not be missed. When we worship God, when we sing and pray and confess sin, when we we come here on Sunday morning, it should almost be like what happens with my cell phone. Okay, check this out. Anyone who knows me knows that I, I love my cell phone. It's on me all the time, not right now, it's back in the back. But I have myself on, on me almost all the time. I can rack up talk minutes, text messages, data usage with the best of them. And because of that, a year into having this phone, my battery is just like almost zapped. So I have to take a charger with me. In my, I have a charger in my car. When I travel, I have to have an extra one in my suitcase. Because you know it's going from 70% to 30% in a hurry. And so I have to regularly charge my cell phone battery so I can continue using my phone. In in some small way, there is a a resemblance there of what should happen in worship. We should be charged up, drawn back to our worship of God, and we should be ready to go out and to serve others with a great sense of mission. And this is incredibly important, because listen, listen to what... Brennan Manning says about this relationship between our faith and our works and what the lost world sees of Christians. Listen, Listen to this. He says, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds Unbelievable. When we acknowledge Jesus with our lips, but don't live a life that backs up our profession, we are leaving people confused on what the gospel really means, what the gospel should do in our lives. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. It should change our life. If you never see a change in your life, let me encourage you to inspect if you really have the gospel at all. So we are to live well by understanding that we will be judged by our works, by our deeds. That should be a motivator. It shouldn't necessarily be the primary. The primary motivator is always God's glory to worship him with our lives because he is worthy of our worship, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our service. But at the same time, we need to remember that we will stand before him and be judged for the way that we live our lives. So that is one encouragement to help us live well. And then here's the second. Live well by loving the least of these. Jesus zeroes in in four different times. He gives this list in chapter 25. He says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was sick. I was in prison. And notice that there is an element of surprise in the response of the righteous and the wicked. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, sick, in prison? When did we see you? And what does Jesus say? He says, surely as you did not do it or did do it to the least of these, you did it to me. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So let's ask a couple questions. Number one, who are are the least of these, my brothers? Who is Jesus talking about? Well, I would would side with some scholars who are much smarter than I when it comes to understanding the Bible, and I would agree that Jesus is probably primarily speaking of his followers, his disciples. He calls them brothers. This accords with the pattern of Scripture where Jesus completely identifies with his people. I mean, think about Acts chapter 9. When, Paul, when, when Saul is met by Christ on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus completely identifies with his people. And I'm sure that Jesus has his people in mind here when he says, look, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But we also know that There's no reason for us to limit the least of these to only followers of Christ. Because we'll be judged for all of our works. We should treat everyone as a potential follower of Christ. And this is what the Bible says again, over and over again. Listen to Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. So Paul says, look, we should do good to all people, but especially those of the household of faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 comes up multiple times in Thessalonians. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I mean, this is what we learned just two weeks ago from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says, look, you scribes and lawyers and Pharisees, you are always concerned about limiting the law, but what you need to do is not worry about who your neighbor is, but just go and be a neighbor to whoever you come in contact with who is in the position of need. So we must be ready and willing to show mercy to anyone and everyone. And you say, well, who are the least of these? I mean, who, who do you consider may be insi- insignificant in the sight of others? Who would you say may not be esteemed in the world's eyes? Are you willi- willing to associate with that person? Are you willing to serve that person? Are you willing to serve the hungry, and the homeless? Are you willing to serve the foreigner and the immigrant, the person that doesn't look like you, talk like you, even speak the same language that you speak? Are you willing to serve the orphan and the widow? The clearest picture I ever saw in my life of someone who lived this truth out was in Guayaquil, Ecuador. There was a man named Jose, and Jose was a doctor. The short story on Jose was he gave up his practice, his medical practice, to begin bringing in street people. He brought in, literally, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the deaf, the homeless, the hungry, He took them in. He cared for him. He had over 20 people at a time living in his home, providing for their medical needs, providing for their physical needs. It was unbelievable. He did it all by faith. And on the wall of his house, entering into his front door, were the words of Matthew 25, verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to to you, as you did to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. See, Jose got these words of Christ. He understood that all people are made in the image of God. They have dignity and worth because of that. We should extend love to all people, no matter what their physical condition is, no matter what their spiritual condition is. We're to be ready to help those in need. You say, Tanner, this is, this, this is, I see it, it sounds good, but where, where am I even to begin? I mean, there are more needs around me that I can ever begin to meet. How do we even begin to fulfill this command? Start with the person in front of you. Start with the, with the, with the people around you. Look, God is not, I don't believe God is going to hold Redemption Hill Church responsible for all of the hungry all over the world. I mean, should we desire to see all of the hungry fed? Absolutely. Will we do something about that? Absolutely. But he will hold us more accountable for the hungry in our neighborhoods. And so this week, as you are out and about in this community serving, you're going to have an opportunity to meet needs. People who, the world, in the world's eyes, they would consider them to be the least of these. So serve with the love of Christ. Jesus says in Luke 19, he says, look, engage in business until I come. We should live our lives with a sense of urgency, with a sense of passion and commitment to say, look, I have to serve others. I have to fulfill this law of love that Jesus has given. And here's the beautiful thing. When we do that, we put forth two pictures So you say, Tanner, what will happen when we serve? I love this. This is great truth. What happens when we serve? Number one, people receive a taste of the coming kingdom of God. Don't don't miss that. People receive a taste of the coming kingdom of God. What I mean by that is this. When we feed the hungry, when we put on a day camp for many kids who don't have a father, some of them don't have a father or a mother, we are putting forth a picture of what the kingdom of God will look like one day. Whereas we read in Revelation, there'll be no more sickness, no more death, no more hunger, no more orphans in the coming kingdom of God. So we put forth a picture, we hopefully give people a taste of what that will be like. We point forward, but also we point back. And we point back to the cross and we give people a picture of, of the gospel. So why is it so important to serve the least of these? It's Because this is what Christ has done for us. He came and died for us who were nothing but His enemies that we might have life in Him. And so as you go out to serve this week, know that you are pointing both forward and back to what the coming kingdom is going to look like, but also what we see is true of the gospel. We want to display the gospel in all of our deeds of service. And as we do, we're always to be ready, always to be ready to declare how the gospel has changed our lives. The two must always be. Go together. And so as we wrap up our time in the Word this morning, let me, let me ask you just this, this final question. This past Friday I was uh, in Kentucky for one of my best friend, child, closest childhood friend's wedding. And um, the wedding was great on Friday night. Saturday night, come back to the airport. And I love, I love being in airports. It's just so cool to walk through, walk through the terminal, see where you know, the, the different gates where people are going almost see something about the culture by just who's gathered there at those, at those gates. And, 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 and I'm always curious to look, where is their final destination? And We see in this passage that we all have a final destination. Jesus says clearly there will be one of two places that every person on the planet will go to spend eternity. With Christ in his presence, and in a new heavens and new earth, where there is eternal joy in his kingdom. Or, we will, others will be called to depart from him, be separated from him, and spend eternity in a place called hell where there is eternal punishment. Jesus is crystal clear. So let me ask you, where is your final destination? Do you know Christ in a saving way? Do you know that By your life now, you are displaying the gospel because you've experienced the gospel in your heart. If you haven't done that, today would be a great day to say, man, I see the truth of Christ, that he died for my sin, that I can now follow him through repentance and faith. And if that is you this morning, then let us be encouraged that we will all give an account for the way that we live our lives, and we're to do so by serving and loving others.